Joining me today is Lauren Kelly, the CEO of OpEx Engine, a member-based benchmarking community for software and SaaS companies. OpEx Engine became a member of the Bain family in 2021, and Lauren joins us for a series on mergers and acquisitions, where we'll dive deep into Bain's M&A capabilities, Bain's M&A team's efforts, and share what companies we've acquired over the years and how they bring value and expertise into the Bain family. Lauren, welcome. Thank you, Keith. I'm thrilled to be here. Both thrilled to be part of Bain and thrilled to be on your podcast. Lauren, why don't we start, as we always do, with a little bit of your background. I also went to school in Boston. We missed each other by a little bit. But, you know, when you went to school, what did you want to major in and what did you want to do on the back end of college? Sure. Well, like a typical college student, I couldn't figure it out for a little bit, but I knew that I was interested in international I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and I just wanted to get out of there and see the broader world and had always been interested in history in different countries. So I ended up studying and doing a dual major in political science and in German area studies. And I was taking German as a language, and I just got really fascinated that in the 20th century, Germany became the biggest power and both times got destroyed and then also became the biggest economic power. And I just really wanted to understand how that worked. Yeah, and so when you did that, did you think that you'd want to go into a career of academia or research, or what did you end up doing on the back end of that dual degree? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think I always wanted to work for, you know, be a foreign service officer, and I wanted to work for the State Department, and I wanted to be Henry Kissinger. Um, But at the same time, There was a lot going on at the time when I was in college, and I sort of became less enamored of Henry Kissinger and some of the things the United States was doing, and it was more complex. So I wandered out into the broader world. And did you end up stopping your academic journey there, or did you continue your education in graduate school? I knew that I wanted to go on further. I worked for a year between college and graduate school. I ended up working in West Berlin because I spoke German and I was given an opportunity and it was really cool and a great place to live as a 22-year-old at the time um, and got a lot of experience. And then I went to Columbia School of International Affairs, went there originally to focus totally on European affairs, which I did, but when I get into something, I get into it really, really deeply. And so I was looking for something new and ended up getting more involved in economics and and trying to understand sort of economic movements in the world and international trade, because I was a beginner and I was really Mm -hmm. bad at it. So I learned a lot. And that was what I ended up doing after graduate school. I was lucky enough to get selected for a a program called a presidential management internship program, which was a very, you know, certain schools could nominate people. And it was a great, great program and really got a tremendous amount of experience and ended up in the office of computers doing trade negotiations with the Japanese on technology. And and I was responsible for the supercomputer industry. So it was pretty cool and got exposed to the tech industry. And as you look back, does it seem ironic to you that the supercomputing power that you were talking about back then is probably less than you have on your phone right now? Yeah, exactly. It's a great point on the one hand, but on the, it's also interesting when you think about some things change hugely and other things don't change at all. And so you see that over and over again. But it was a great experience for me. I ended up getting frustrated with government work, not because 
you know, I still have tremendous respect for the incredible work that so many people are doing. It just requires a different personality. I just was more operational, get stuff done. I have a really weird sort of combination of analytical and sort of theoretical background together with, you know, just get stuff done operational. So that's how I ended up moving on. I have experience working with the city here and the county here where I sit in Chicago, and I completely agree. The mindset and the skill set that it takes to balance such a diverse set of stakeholders, it's special, and it takes a special type of person to do that work. I also realized I was not cut out for it as part of that work. Don't give up on it. You probably have a lot more to contribute than you think right now. We will see for sure. On the back end of that, we were talking, you you ended up making the pivot to the private sector, but staying close to technology and computing. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and the experience that you had? It sounds like it was a, a pretty broad experience from our previous conversations. So I was in the government. I was a little bit, you know, I'd been there for six, seven years. I was frustrated, didn't know what I wanted to do. And then again, I was really lucky and got into a terrific mid-career program where I got to go work in the German government and as part of that because it was half a year in the German government and half a year in industry. And so I was lucky enough to, because of being in technology, to work at Siemens for one of the board directors. But the funny thing is I went over in August of 1989 to work in the economics ministry in Bonn as a you know guest from the US government on this mid-career program to work on European community technology agreements. And in August of 1989, that seemed like a really great thing to do, except for that in October of 1989, the Berlin Wall fell down. So I had this terrific seat from within the government in Bonn of what the West German government was doing with all of those you know, changes happening. And very quickly, the focus on technology in the European community was much more focused on what do we do to, you know, with all these people streaming over the wall and like stripping stores bare. It goes back to the kind of things I just love doing, which is, you know, the little things, the operational stuff that is mm-hmm. what makes the world move. I mean, you know, the German government was obsessed for a while because the East Germans came over the wall and it was October, November, December. They hadn't had access to the spices for Christmas cookies for 40 years. They didn't have access to cinnamon and nutmeg and all those kind of things. So they stripped the stores bare. And you would think, you know, the German government was just totally obsessed with being concerned that West Germans would stop supporting the integration of East Mm. Germany with West Germany because they couldn't make their Christmas cookies. I mean, it sounds silly, but that is how politics happens and how changes happen. So anyway, at the end of that, I had the chance to go back to Washington and go back to negotiating with Japan on semiconductors. And I wasn't interested in doing that after this amazing year in Germany of transition Mm -hmm. and, you know, transformation. And Compact Computer, European headquarters, was based in Munich. They were looking at opening up the market in Eastern Europe. So there was an opportunity for me. I was lucky enough to get to do that. So I spent the next three, four years building out and working with partners all over Eastern Europe and initially the Soviet Union and then eventually Russia because they were slow to change, slower than the rest of Eastern Europe to change. 
So it was fabulous. It was just a tremendous experience. And then really for personal reasons, I met my husband, my future husband, who was a American tech journalist or business journalist, actually from Business Week, he was responsible for technology in Europe. And he was based out of Paris. And so we made the personal decision, either he would give up his job and move to Munich to be with me, or I would make the unbelievable sacrifice of giving up German food to move to Paris and have to, you know, suffer through all the good wine in Paris. <laughs> so I continued to work for Compaq for a year remotely, but back then it wasn't as easy. If you can think back to before Zoom. So I switched over to an American software company, Borland, and mm -hmm. was became general manager for about 22 countries. And that was a great experience for me as well. So talk about what it was like as a female executive leading such a big part of, at the time, a major company. I mean, I remember using Borland's products at that time. And I have to imagine there weren't a lot of women in tech, and there certainly weren't a lot of women in tech with such huge roles leading operations in 22 countries. What was that like for you? And how was that adjustment? I mean, I think being a woman obviously has been part of my life since the beginning and has affected my career. Even when I worked in the government, there were times where I felt like it was hard to be, you know, I just don't have the personality that could overcome the barriers to get my voice heard. And so the thing that I like about business, despite all the barriers and despite all the gender inequities, is that it comes down to business. And if you can do a deal, and if you can do the business, you can be heard. Sometimes you have to, you know, you just accept the fact that, and sometimes you can take advantage of, of the fact. So for example, when I was at Borland there, I was responsible also for the Middle East. And so I had a Arab American sales manager for the Middle East who represented us. You know, we did a lot of business in Israel and Egypt and throughout the Middle East. And then every year there was a, a trade show in Dubai. There's a big IT trade show every year in Dubai. And I would go. And the funny thing is sometimes I'd get invited onto the sort of exclusive party with a sheik who controlled a lot of IT purchases in the Middle East because I, I knew that I was being invited because I was an oddity, because I was a woman. But I would go because then I could make some contacts and then I would pass it over to my sales manager. And I couldn't do certain aspects of the business, but I could manage it from behind the scenes mm -hmm. and make it happen. You know, the same thing happened when I was representing the U.S. government and I'm in Japan and there's not a lot of Japanese women, or at least certainly not when I was there, Japanese women CEOs of technology companies. But sometimes I literally would be taken out to dinner just because I was such an oddity. But, you know, it gives me the opportunity to talk to people, find out things, and then, you know, you put the right person forward to get the job done that you need done. So. It works. It can. And I think that the challenge some people have is coming to terms with that and understanding sort of which battles they want to fight and which battles they don't. Because there is an emotional tax that comes with being the only one sometimes that I think a lot of people can relate to. Yeah, I think, I mean, you articulate it incredibly well. I guess I, you know, it's funny. It's one of the things why 
I ended up drifting more and more towards sales and revenue responsibility mm -hmm. because, you know, I just don't have that sort of dominant personality. I felt like in marketing or in other parts of the company where I might have been well qualified, but I couldn't, my voice wasn't going to be heard. But on the sales side, even if I get beaten up, even if I get excluded, whatever, but if I produce the numbers, I get, you know, a little, a seat at the table. And so I think personally that has impacted me or affected my choices. Definitely. I want to talk a little bit about what you said there, because some people might have missed it. And it's a good pivot into OpEx Engine. You talked about in sales, the numbers are all that matters. You either got the deals done or you didn't. Let's talk a little bit about the spark that led to OpEx Engine. Where did that come from? And how did you get the idea or, or identify the market need that led to the company in the first place? There was a little more evolution there. So the interesting thing, I went from Compaq. So Compaq was a really successful company when I was there and I was opening up a new market, but I thought, you know, wow, I can do this. Then when I went to Borland, I feel like the big learning for me was, you know, I was a general manager and I knew before that I always had people above me where, you know, I think everybody always sort of chafes at management above them and feels like, well, I could do this better and you know they're making dumb choices and blah 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 right. and then when you're the manager you realize gee it's not that easy and there's a lot more considerations or yeah i make mistakes or whatever but usually it's there's a lot more considerations that any one individual knows about so after borland my husband and i decided to come back to the us and my husband had a job in boston and so I figured if I can't find a job in tech in Boston, then shame on me. <laughs> so I ended up being really lucky and getting a great job with a very sort of early stage startup, a company that had been a, or was a, you know, really a consulting company and was developing products out of that at a time, you know, this was in the mid nineties when the internet really wasn't established that well, but this company, a bunch of guys out of MIT, really were very leading edge and had some very foundational technology for the internet. And, you know, it was another management experience for me where I was now working with a company that didn't have great marketing or organization behind me, and I had to build everything myself. So that was a, a huge challenge and a, a great learning experience. I do have to say, since we've talked about the theme a little bit of being a woman, I'll give the story and I will always have just such appreciation. The CEO of that company, this young guy, he first offered me the job. I said at that time, he offered me the job. I was six months pregnant. And I said, you know, I'll take this on a contract basis for three months, but I'm going or I might have been four or five months pregnant at that point. I said, I'll take this until I have the baby, but you know, I've never built a couple of businesses, but I've never had a baby before. I have no idea how this is going to affect me. So I don't want to be an employee and feel an obligation. So long story short, two days before I went into labor and I worked up till the last day before I delivered, 
he called me up and he said, if you become an employee, you will have full maternity leave and paid leave for two months. So you should do this. Wow. And I said, okay. (laughs) So I joined this company, our technology group, you know, wild ride. We went public. We were the most highly valued company at that point. Even in 2001, when the market was collapsing, we did 40% more in the first half of 2001 than we did in 2000. But then 9-11 happened and things slowed down. But anyway, I eventually left there the whole original. I think I was one of the last of the original management team that left. And I went and spent some time as an executive in residence at SoftBank because they were had made a lot of money in my company and they were super nice and hospitable. And so when I sort of got my head together and thought I want to get back into an operating role, I looked around and was looking to and talking to different companies and different investors and management teams. And everybody kept asking me the same questions over and over again. You know, at this stage, what would you spend on sales and marketing? You know, how much would you spend on product? How would that evolve? What do you think about these, you know, this new model SaaS? And what do you think about the metrics for that? And again, going back to my roots as sort of a weird combination of operational and analytical, I think it didn't seem that complicated to, and it seemed crazy to me that there was no third party independent platform that collected data from all the companies, you know, in the PC industry, there was IDC and they collected all this data. When I was at Compaq, we shared all our data with IDC. So did IBM, so did Mm -hmm. Dell and everybody. And then we lived by that data in our management meetings. And in software at that time, everybody thought I'm a unique company and it's totally based on my creativity and there's no way you can compare me or benchmark me against another company. But when you talk to operational people and finance people and even salespeople, they'll say, yeah, you know, there's only a certain number of models out there. And, and you know, Keith, from consulting that there's lots of variations, but there's basic business models. You know, I got the idea. I never thought that I would be a founder because I'm not a, a tech person and I'd been in the tech industry. And so I see all these great, brilliant engineers and computer scientists, and that's not me, but I've been around it long enough and I'm analytical enough to be able to figure out some of it. So I said, what the heck, I'm going to start this and try and go it and build an independent company and see what we can do. And, you know, in the beginning, it was, it's just a lot of, I say the beginning as if it ever changed. It's a lot of elbow grease and just working really hard. But it's been a terrific ride. So you founded the company in 2006. And presumably you're collecting a lot of the data that you've been getting asked questions about. And based on your own experience, you can answer those questions. But you saw an opportunity to sort of collect that data on a much broader scale. Talk a little bit about what the company does in collecting the data, who uses the data, what type of data are you collecting? So we're collecting both financial data and operational data. So if you think about it, the original sort of use case for OpEx Engine was in the budgeting process. So when you think about a budget, you've got the financials and then you've got every department of the company 
and you want to know how much should I spend, how many people should I hire, what are the productivity metrics for each department. And then, you know, with SaaS, you have additional sort of customer metrics and also unit economic metrics that don't necessarily just apply to SaaS, but they became popularized in the SaaS sort of industry. And so you have, you know, metrics like cost of customer acquisition and retention rates and recurring revenue tracking. And because I had been so much on the operational side, it was, you know, I kind of knew certainly what I got asked every year mm -hmm. and what I had to work on. And then in today's world, people aren't just budgeting once a year like they used to a long time ago, but it's looking at the budget really on a monthly or quarterly basis. So the way OpEx Engine is structured is we look at financials, at SaaS metrics, and then for every major department of a typical software or SaaS company. So sales, marketing, R&D, G&A, professional services, customer support, customer success, and HR, we collect data from our customers and we normalize it and validate it. And then our customers in our platform can apply filters, sort of business defining filters against the blinded database and create cohorts to compare themselves against. So it allows you to do several of those. So you could compare yourself against your peers today. And then I'm a SaaS company, I'm like 50 million or 100 million and I'm growing at 30%. So I want to compare myself to $100 million companies and I want to compare myself to 150 or $200 million companies. So does that give you, for example, the opportunity to say, where will I invest the next chunk of capital in my business based on, you know, if I play forward 50 million in growth, what's going to break? Is that how companies are using this type of data? Yeah, absolutely. Doing two to three year or even five year planning. They're using it for fundraising and showing investors the path. The thing that's important to remember, or I think you know it, but not everybody realizes this. In the old days, as companies got bigger, typically their ratios went down. So, you know, you could say a hundred million dollar company spends maybe 25% on sales. And then a 500 million or a billion dollar company spends, you know, 20% or 18%. It just keeps going down. But in today's technology world, the digital world, and in SaaS particularly, the numbers don't go exactly that way. So think about Salesforce. Everybody knows Salesforce, the CRM company. So as they grew, then they started to do business in Europe, and then they started to do business in Asia Pac. So their cost for hosting sometimes went up dramatically as they had to set up data centers in Europe and in Asia Pac so that the speed of access and the security of having something closer by and the privacy issues and all of that. So in SaaS, it often happens. I mean, we see companies that sales and marketing is going down, then they get a big funding chunk and all of a sudden their sales and marketing goes way up because they're investing for greater growth or a product company decides to become a platform company. So their R&D goes way up, mm -hmm. all those kind of things. And you mentioned the companies that are using the data. Are there also a lot of investors that are using this data to evaluate the companies they're considering making investments in? 
Definitely, although it's a really interesting point because, and that relates to how we ended up at, at Bain, if you want to introduce that topic. So Bain is the global leader in consulting with private equity and with investors. And because technology is one of the areas where I think it's the biggest sector for private equity of any one particular sector. And so there's kind of a natural fit there. So we had started a, a partnership with Bain a couple of years ago, which really was a Bain became a customer of ours and we would supply data for due diligence and other casework that Bain was doing. You know, fast forward to last year, we had the opportunity, actually, it was sort of a hot market last year and a couple of different companies were interested in acquiring OpEx Engine and we mentioned it to Bain as a, you know, major customer and partner. And they said, oh, you know, we're interested too, we'll throw our hat in. And one of the things I liked about the combination with Bain was that not so much that investors are using our data to make decisions about the companies they acquire, although that's definitely a use case, but we need to bring together the investor perspective on what metrics drive success in companies and the you know, internal operations of a company and the company management. And I think there's a tremendous amount of work to be done there. And I think it's really exciting because Bain has such great insights into how investors think, as well as working with big, huge tech companies. And OpEx Engine primarily works in the mid-market, so small and, and mid-market companies, companies under a billion dollars. You know, I'm really excited to be able to bring some of those perspectives that Bain has and insights that Bain uses on the consulting side with big projects and try and automate some of that to share with the mid-market. So who else does what OpEx Engine does in the SaaS and software market? It's a great question because there's not really anyone who's a direct competitor. No one else has a product like us. And, you know, the benefit is just we started and we built up this proprietary database and nobody else has that database. I would say that in terms of how customers purchase us, there are a lot of free surveys out there or investors like to do benchmarking of their own portfolio companies. The difference is that, and I think this came up in when Bain was looking at acquiring us, is all we do is benchmark and all we do is clean the data and all we do is work with companies to normalize the data. So when you do a free survey in the first place, anybody can put anything in and it's right. not necessarily that quantitative or accurate. When you have investor benchmarks, in the first place, people like to have a third party source of data because as we all know, data can be manipulated or even if we don't intentionally manipulate things, we all have our own perspectives on things, which is why having a diverse company is also really important because it brings in lots of different perspectives. And, and at OpEx Engine, we believe in that as just a good strategic management objective. And I think we've managed it pretty well. You know, in terms of competition, again, there's just the bias in the other data that's out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, the relationship that we started with OpEx Engine is sort of 
now brought OpEx Engine into the family, but you're effectively, it sounds like, the standard out there for people who want this type of information, which is really amazing. Yeah, I mean, we think so. And, and we take really strongly our mandate as being independent. And that was part of our agreement with Bain. Our customer data is totally protected and anonymized and blinded because that's the trust the companies place in us. Right. Can you talk a little bit about how your team works with Bain? You're not a big army of consultants that are joining the case teams or anything like that. And so some people might be going, wow, that's really cool that Bain now has sort of the gold standard for this type of data. What would my experience be working with OpEx Engine if I joined Bain as a consultant or a manager or an, an analytics expert? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and granted, we've only been part of Bain for you know a couple of months now. So <laughs> <It's been laughs> ask me again in a year or two. So we're sorting some of that out, but I think we have a really natural fit. We sit within PEG, some of the names change, but PEG proprietary data. So with other data venture groups, and then you know how Bain has this sort of cross-functional, we support both PEG and technology and particularly software, but then we also support different projects in commercial excellence and in performance improvement, because all those things relate to the benchmarks that we provide. So Bain consultants use OpEx Engine. There's really two ways. One is we can supply just straight data for whatever the project is. And I think we provide a lot of consultation around that because we're just so close to the companies that it's really helpful. And then our core business is subscriptions and getting the data from the companies themselves. And that's a motion that we're working together with the Bain teams because it's such a synergistic and natural relationship because it's kind of like a leave behind. We're gonna do this project, but also do a benchmarking audit with OpEx Engine and stay on their platform. And then, you know, you can see the improvements from the project that we just did. And in fact, you know, every company, there's going to be new things going on, but it's also good for Bain because it means once we have that relationship, we're working with the finance team and the folks in the company on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. We're not just coming in on a project basis and then leaving. I think it's good for the relationship building as well as for the information. Right. Lauren, as we start to wrap, as you mentioned, you're company has been a part of the family for only a couple of months now. What have been some of the bright spots early on with the integration? Bain has a well-established M&A capability, and now we have an M&A team that's actually doing M&A with Bain. What have been some of the bright spots in the last few months for you and the team? Yeah, I think the operational integration went really smoothly. We're integrated very quickly on an, from an accounting and a legal perspective in terms of HR and, and those kind of things. I think that went really smoothly. And then from a technology perspective, it went as smoothly as it could. I think we're operating in, in difficult times where email and communications issues around infrastructure and security and privacy just takes a little bit longer, but I think that's gone really well. And then the nice thing is just all the main folks that we've met have been just really helpful and problem solving oriented and just really smart people. So we 
we like working with smart people. So that makes it fun. That always helps. Lauren, one last question for you. What gets you excited about the future of OpEx Engine? What's next on the horizon as you integrate into Bain and support all of your subscribers? I'm just really excited to have better customer value with more and more companies using the data, more and more problems being solved because of the data. The other area I didn't mention that, you know, finance teams like to use our benchmarking for is diagnostics, you know, to try and identify weaknesses or areas of inefficiency. And and also just I'm excited because the more people use the data and use the metrics, it gives everyone a common language. And that makes things so much more efficient when everybody's talking about the same thing. So I'm just really excited to see that expand and grow. Awesome. Lauren, thank you so much for the conversation today. We met actually through a mutual friend who introduced us outside of Bain. It was great to meet you recently in person at our America's Leadership Team meeting. But thank you for your time today and sharing your story and the OpEx Engine story with all of our listeners. I'm thrilled to be here and thanks for inviting me. Thanks everyone for tuning in to Beyond the Bio. If you'd like to share a review or give us input on what you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd really like to hear from you. Please email our inbox at beyondthebio at bain.com. We'll see you soon with some new episodes and thanks for listening.